Welcome. Church of the Advent is an Anglican congregation in Denver, Colorado, that seeks to share in the life of God by redefining and reorienting everything around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hope you are challenged, encouraged, and move closer toward the gospel by this week's message. So the largest public demonstration in the history of our country happened just two years ago, which is kind of surprising. George Floyd was murdered on May 25th, 2020, and around 15 million people took part in the protests that followed. 15 million people, it's estimated. Before that, there was the Me Too movement that shook the upper, upper echelons of Hollywood, especially in Fortune 500 companies, and revealing countless stories of abuse, subtle and overt abuse. And then today, in the Anglican Church, some of you know this, in our own church, grappling with relational breakdowns as Aknatu and Believe Us To publicly spar about the Anglican Church's response to an abuser and his victims in a Midwestern diocese. And so out there in the world and even in our midst in the church, everywhere we turn we see fractured relationships, socially and societally. There's a lot of relational breakdown around us. And the question this morning is, is there any hope? Is there any hope? We've been preaching through um, Tim Keller's Hope in Times of Fear. This week, we're jumping into chapter 9, and we're going to get more practical. We've kind of laid the foundation in the past four or five weeks. We're getting a little more practical this morning. And here is the point of the sermon in a sentence. The death and resurrection of Jesus gives Christians the resources we need to transform and heal relationships. The resurrection especially of Jesus gives Christians the resources we need to transform and heal relationships. In other words, it's the source of our hope. In chapter 9, Keller kind of covers a lot of different areas. This is true. He covers class and wealth and money, and he covers personal conflict, and then he covers race and sexuality. And this morning, because I'm a glutton for punishment, we're going to zoom in on race and sexuality. So let's pray. Father, we do pray you would open our hearts to receive from your word, that you would cause your word to dwell in our hearts richly and inform the way we see the world through your eyes. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. So let's begin with race. What, what does the Bible say about race? What does it have to do with the, the resurrection? Here's a start. Galatians 3. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons and daughters of God. For as many as you were bapt- who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all, all one in Christ Jesus. All right, now these verses are forming um, a part of a rebuke that Paul is actually giving to Peter, one of the heads of the, church, the early church. Why is he rebuking Peter? Because Peter we find, had been reverting to his pre-Christian practice of eating exclusively with other Jews. And this practice was born of a cultural belief that Gentiles, non-Jews, were inferior, spiritually unclean. So Paul's rebuke to Peter is that by refusing table fellowship with Gentiles, non-Jews, he is placing his Jewish identity, his ethnic identity as a Jew, above his spiritual identity as one baptized into the risen Christ. He says, that is not the way of Christ. We are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul then summarizes the whole argument of Galatians in Galatians 6, and he says, for there is neither circumcision that counts, for, uh, neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, which is a way of saying neither Jews nor non-Jews. But what counts is 
new creation, is what he says, new creation. Neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. What counts as new creation? New creation which was launched in the resurrection of Jesus and is launched in you and I when by faith and baptism we trust Jesus. Paul is addressing head-on the the racial and the economic and the social and the sexual differences that are so often exploited by evil. That leads to the profound breakdown of relationships, of relationships between ethnicities and classes and genders and on and on. What's the solution? Now, it sounds as if the solution is to erase all distinctions altogether, doesn't it? Neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. So just Uh, This week I was speaking to one of my neighbors, a dear, dear neighbor of mine, a kind and protective and elderly gentleman in his 80s, and he he knows, he uses the old word minister, he knows I'm a minister, Um, and he wanted to get my take on the news about Roe v. Wade. And so I began kind of a nuanced answer. I said, you know, from the earliest days, the church has been pro-life, absolutely. And this is another opportunity for the church to redouble its efforts to make sure we are really, truly, comprehensively pro-life. Caring from womb to tomb, as it said, including mothers who are facing really, really difficult circumstances. And he nearly, like, cut me off, and he said, you see, I'm a lifelong Republican. And, oh, okay, I thought, he was really asking for my political allegiance card. Which party do you belong to? Um, You know, he thought that would be answer enough. And, of course, I don't carry one, and I never will. But somehow the conversation meandered to critical race theory, and he said, I just don't understand. I'm not racist. Maybe someone... In my family, 100 years ago, was racist, but what does that have to do with me today? Can you tell me? I, I, I don't understand. And he was sincere. He didn't sound angry at all. He didn't sound accusatory. He sounded confused and curious, like the conversation had kind of left him behind, and he couldn't quite catch up to it. And he just, it, it didn't quite make sense to him. And so more than anything, I thought it was just a great conversation where, where he was just sharing his heart and his perspective. Now, he didn't say these exact words, but he hinted at them. I don't even see color. You maybe have heard someone say this. I I don't, when it comes to race, I'm colorblind. You know, I don't see color at all. You know, black or white or brown, whatever, it's, we're all the same. Is that what Paul is saying? Neither Jew nor Greek, neither male nor female, neither slave nor free. In Christ, are we all just kind of a grayish, gelatinous, non-gendered goop? Absolutely not. That is not what Paul is saying. A broader survey of the biblical teaching demonstrates that Paul is not destroying distinctions altogether. That is not what he's doing. For example, Paul himself celebrates his Jewish heritage. He celebrates it. He's proud to be an Israelite. Or consider Isaiah 60, where the prophet sees new creation and the city of God as wonderfully colorful and diverse. Or in Revelation 21, 26, where John pictures the new creation, saying, the glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Dr. Robert Romero is a Latino pastor and a Christian professor at UCLA. And he notes that the word translated glory here can be translated as treasure or wealth, meaning that the cultural treasure, the cultural wealth, the ethnic wealth of a specific group is going to be streaming into the new Jerusalem and beautified, and sanctified eternally. So God is not erasing distinctions. He's sanctifying them, yes. In fact, Romero concludes, the brown and the black church have been repositories of such diverse glory and honor for more than four centuries. So again, the biblical vision is not one of colorblindness. Rather, it is a symphony of color. 
a symphony of color, united in worship, yes, worshiping the one true God, but it's so diverse. The language, the gifts, the colors is what makes it so beautiful. Now, here is one way I could have helped my neighbor see when we started talking about critical race theory, that in the words of David French, it can be more useful and helpful than its critics contend. Here's one way I could have helped my neighbor see that. Dr. Romero notes the overlap between what I've just said and a concept that critical race theorists call community cultural wealth. And in this model, critical race theorists study, for example, how are Latino college students failing, excuse me, the traditional model would, would ask the question, how are Latino college students kind of failing to measure up? And by that, the measure is a traditional white middle-class student. How are they failing to kind of meet that standard? That's kind of an, a bias that exists in much of the educational system. But the community cultural wealth theory would say, instead, what if we began by asking, what are the unique cultural treasures that Latino students are bringing to education and to this campus? And the result of one such study found the answer that Latino students in our campuses all across the country are bringing immense spiritual capital, is what they called it, an immense treasure of spiritual capital into the educational process that is often missing. Do you see that subtle shift? So what is Paul doing here? He's not erasing all distinctions because, more broadly, he celebrates cultural wealth and cultural treasure. What is he doing? He is de-ultimizing them, to coin a word. He is de-idolizing them. So, to be an equal opportunity offender in view of CRT, this is why Christians should be both willing and ready to learn from CRT as a helpful tool, but also may be cautious of the extreme edges of CRT, which may make race the totalizing center of human identity. Does that make sense? We have to think, in other words. There is no one-size-fits-all approach. We have to apply our minds and get outside the polarizing categories that we were invited into over and over again and think biblically. There is an ancient spiritual truth that goes like this. When good things become ultimate things, they become bad things. The Bible does not erase the unique treasures of our cultures, our ethnicities, but it does de-idolize them and then purifies them making our union with Christ our highest identity above all else, which solves a very serious problem we find on either extreme when it comes to race, I think. So if we, if we make race ultimate, the ultimate totalizing identity of our lives, then you are either for me or you're against me. You're for my, my ethnicity and my race or you're against it. And this is the way of Hitler. This is the way of Putin. There's us and them, and you're in or you're out. But if the opposite happens, and all ethnic distinction is just erased and we're colorblind, people are asked to deny themselves and who God has made them to be. They're asked to lay down their unique cultural treasures that God has given them. And then we just fall into this bland kind of colorblindness that strips the world of its unique beauty. So we have to, we have to be careful of both those extremes. Only by finding a higher identity in Christ, the risen Christ, can our ethnic gifts at once be de-ultimacized, which allows us to surrender them to God and allows God to correct them and speak to them and sanctify them, but also celebrated and given back to us and shared with the world, not as ultimate identities to be guarded, but gifts to be shared. Am I making sense? Medium? Okay. All right, I'll take medium. 
If I know that I am, let me try it. If I know that I am defined ultimately by being in the risen Christ through his spirit first, and that I am a white American with Polish heritage second, then when a black brother or sister in Christ asks me to take an honest look at my ethnic heritage and legacy, I can, because I'm not so rabidly defensive about it, because it's just, it's everything to me. No, I, it's okay. Okay, I can be quick to, to look at it, to repent where I see problems, and yet, because Christ made me this way and treasures my culture, and I know I have unique gifts as a white man, I can sincerely appreciate what he's given me, not as ultimate, as a good thing, not a God. All right, making sense? That is why multi-ethnic churches and multi-ethnic friendships and multi-ethnic marriages built on the love of Christ beautifully reflect, reflect the gospel to the world, okay? Because the kingdom of God is diverse, full of diverse treasures. And I pray God would make us more beautifully reflect his kingdom in this way. All right, race and sex each deserve their own sermon, if not sermon series, but this is going to have to suffice. Let's, let's look at how the resurrection applies to sexual relationships. One of the reasons that I'm partnering these two teachings together is that what I've just said to the modern ear um, may sound somewhat liberal to some of you. It's probably, it's likely to challenge those of you who align more politically kind of on the right. But what I'm about to say now about sex is going to challenge those of you who might find your political allegiances a little more left. So I'm going to be an equal opportunity challenger here. <clears throat> because what I just said, you know, Christians are invited to de-ultimacize race, yes. They're also invited to de-ultimacize political party because neither party fully represents the kingdom of God. So what does the resurrection have to say about sex? Let's start with a kind of behavioral paradigm, and then we'll get to the why behind the behavioral paradigm. So here is the paradigm in two words. 1 Corinthians 6.18, Paul says, flee porneia, flee porneia. And that is a Greek word. And this Greek word is an umbrella term under which many things fit. So, for example, without a doubt, this word means flee incest, flee premarital sex, prostitution, extramarital affairs, pornography, and homosexual acts. We could go on. By the way, I want to emphasize acts there. In fact, uh, I think it was the NRSV or the ESV we read this morning, practicing is the word they use, because some of the greatest saints I know are followers of Jesus who are attracted to the same sex. And for as long as they can remember it, that's kind of been the way it's been. You know what? And they have decided, knowing that sex is not ultimate of their identity, to live out a celibate lifestyle and to give their sexual desires continually to the Lord out of faithfulness to Jesus. And that is extraordinary faith. Extraordinary faith are some of my heroes. So notice Paul does not say it's a good idea to avoid these things, if, if possible, you know, if it works out for you. He uses a very strong word, flee, flee it, stay from, far away from it as possible, at all costs. Now, this was in ancient Rome, as it is today, a profoundly distinctive and countercultural mark of what it meant to be a Christian, and it remains so for us. This sex ethic was understood by the apostles as a non-negotiable part of orthodoxy, Okay? Despite its controversy, despite its countercultural paradigm, it was a non-negotiable part of orthodoxy, emphasized again and again in the New Testament. So, umbrella of grace. If I could be blunt, I want to say just two practical truths. 
to some degree, every single one of us in this room is sexually broken. Amen? Struggling with sexual sin does not remove you from God's love. Okay? You are never, never, never too dirty. You are never too broken. You are never too unfaithful. You are never too addicted to be beyond the bounds of the love of Jesus. Hear that clearly. Okay? And to the extent that you find you have kind of abandoned yourself into slavery to sexual sin, or you've just stopped fighting, or you've just embraced it, or you're just being very lazy about it, your spiritual life and your relationships are gravely wounded. And it is of utmost importance that you take this very seriously and you begin taking practical steps towards healing and freedom and repentance. It will ruin your life. I have seen it again and again. I've seen it crumble marriages. I've seen it undermine friendships. I've seen it destroy communities. We've all seen it on the national stage. This is a fight we have to engage in, okay? As those who know, none of us is there. We're all in process, and there's so much grace for the process, but don't just give in and become a slave, okay? You've got to fight. So don't allow pornography to ruin your life. Don't. Just don't. Fight it. You know, there are steps you can take. I know it can be hard. Do not sleep around with people who have not vowed before God to cherish you until death. Don't do it. Do not allow sexual attraction to become compulsive and totalizing in your life. Single people, do not believe the lie that what you really need to be happy is sex. Married people, do not be unfaithful to your spouse with your eyes, your heart, or with your body. That's the ethic of the New Testament, okay? Remember what I said first, if you're feeling a little ashamed. There it is, though, the body. Paul says, the body. We come to the why behind what can seem so restrictive and so repressive and so unhealthy to the onlooking world. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. So God says he will raise us up by his power, and he's talking about our bodies. So we are our bodies. With these words, Paul is confronting the dominant worldview of his day and of ours, that the body is a relatively unimportant receptacle for the immortal soul. That's what the Romans thought. And then this view, sex is strictly a physical appetite and therefore no big deal. You know, it's just chemistry. Against this view, Paul asserts a radically different view of the body, namely that just like Jesus' resurrected body, God will raise up and redeem our bodies. The biblical vision of new creation is not disembodied souls in the sky. It is you being raised bodily with Christ into new creation, which means that what we do with our bodies matters. It is not just chemistry. It is not just physical. It is spiritual. It has eternal, significant consequences. So whatever embodied actions we do matter. So Paul goes on to verse 16 to say that the one who unites himself or herself to a prostitute has not simply had a physical desire satiated, as they might think, but has become one body with them. For the two will become one flesh, he says. And that, in saying that, he's sending us back to Genesis 2, 24, where Adam and Eve become one flesh, and their union is described as this, the word used, faithfully devoted or attached. Meaning that sexual union was made by God to deepen and reflect a whole life faithfully devoted, attached union of marriage. 
a holistic spiritual, emotional, legal, potentially child-welcoming union. So Paul is not saying that sex just automatically creates this union. Rather, he's saying that acts of porneia, like sexual acts outside of marriage with a prostitute, disastrously forget the purpose of sex. Is that making sense? C.S. Lewis's words will help clarify. He says, the monstrosity of sexual intercourse outside marriage, it's a strong word, is that those who indulge in it are trying to isolate one kind of union, the sexual, from all other kinds of union, which were intended to go along with it and make up the total union. The Christian attitude does not mean that there is anything wrong about sexual pleasure. There's not. It's a gift from God. Any more than about the pleasure of eating, says Lewis. It means that you must not isolate that pleasure and try to get it by itself any more than you ought to try to get the pleasure of taste without swallowing and digesting by chewing things and spitting them out again. Mm. There's an image. The resurrection dignifies our bodily actions with spiritual significance. That's why sex matters. But wait, there's more. Not only does the resurrection do that, dignify our body, but it also teaches that sexual union points to our whole life union with Christ. It teaches us theological truths. Which ones? Well, first, that our spiritual union with Christ begins by Jesus giving himself over completely to us, vulnerably, sacrificially. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, says Paul. Okay, that's the beginning of marriage. When you choose to give yourself up sacrificially for the good of another, right? Second, our response to this radical self-giving is to give ourselves back to Christ, and he asked for exclusive covenantal faithfulness. No other gods before me, right? Third, the wonder of our spiritual union is that it is between two radically different beings. Humans, humanity, God, divine. And that then the joining of the two produces life, okay? Each of these points I've just said grounds the Christian sex ethic because on the the surface it can appear restrictive, but these are the truths behind the rules. First, because we are only united to Christ through the radical selflessness of Jesus, our marital unions only thrive in the context of selflessness and sacrifice. Second, because being joined to Christ results in an exclusive permanent covenantal union, sex is only for those within an exclusive permanent covenantal union. And third, because our salvation brings unity not of the same kind, but of a deeply different and therefore fruit-bearing kind, so marriage is the union of a man and a woman. Sex, then, is not just a way for an individual to get pleasure. I mean, if it was, yeah, no big deal, right? It is so much more significant than that. It is a way to reflect and connect your life to the self-giving divine love that is at the heart of the universe. So it's far from arbitrary. In fact, this whole sex ethic, and really what I've said about race, is shaped by what Keller is calling the great reversal, which is the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Because this great reversal shows that Jesus, when he came, he gives us, well, The greatest freedom for himself and for us comes through the cross, right? From serving us and sacrificing. So sexual freedom is necessarily selfless and committed and other-oriented. So in contrast to the modern sexual ethic, which is essentially selfish, I mean, consensual is the highest value, but it's like eating without swallowing and digesting. 
It's spitting out the food. It's trying to get the taste and the pleasure of food, but none of the nutrients. You know, only the food in this analogy is another person who's been made in the image of God. When Jesus went to the cross, says Lewis, that's what the Father and the Son and the Spirit have been doing in a sense for eternity, sacrificially serving and seeking the good of the other in this dance of selflessness within the heart of God himself. In the words of Thomas Merton, infinite sharing is the law of God's inner life. Therefore, says Lewis, it is in self-giving that we touch the rhythm not only of all creation but of all being. He says, what is outside the system of self-giving is not earth, nor nature, nor ordinary life, but simply and solely hell. The earth becomes a hellacious place when everyone is self-obsessed and self-interested. But if we live defined by the great reversal, laying down power, sacrificially serving the other, then we're led to freedom. So yes, there's, there's me too, and there's Anglican too, and there's Believe Us too, and there, there are fracturing relationships everywhere we look between men and women and black and white and rich and poor, and the root of it all is exploitive selfishness. But the death and resurrection of Jesus gives Christians the resources we need to transform, to break the cycle. It de-idolizes, yet celebrates our race, and it dignifies our bodies. And most of all, it gives us this paradigm at the heart of reality, the great reversal. Where can we find hope? We find hope in the infinite selflessness of God's inner life in which we, by the Spirit, have now come to live in the very heart of God himself. I know I've said a lot of things, too many things, um, that have struck probably all of you a little differently. I really would love to connect if you have conversations or critiques or something to process, jordan at adventdenver.com. Father, we pray that you would give us a vision um, for what it looks like to be increasingly faithful to you as a body um, when it comes especially to race and sex. You would give us grace for the process. These conversations, none of us is wholly right. None of us has wrapped our mind completely around it. So give us humility to engage one another humbly, to learn from one another, and to walk closely with you as we do. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. We encourage you to take a moment to reflect on what God might be saying to you through what you just heard. For questions, additional information, and resources, please visit adventdenver.com.